Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com, where, among other things, we publish in-depth and totally honest reviews of outdoor sports equipment. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Garrett Altman. Garrett's a competitor on the Freeride World Tour, as well as a Blister reviewer, one of our original Blister reviewers, in fact. We talked to Garrett about his very interesting and diverse background, growing up racing and mogul skiing, his time on the U.S. ski team, and his appearances in Warren Miller movies. Garrett is leaving in just a couple days to head to Europe for the start of the Freeride World Tour, so we talked to him about the FWT, about some of the venues, Garrett's mindset heading into the tour, and his strategy this season, how he thinks about risk versus reward, that constant inner struggle of whether to pick a conservative line, play it safe, and just stay on your feet, versus saying screw it and just going big. We talked to you about some rule changes that we'd like to see the FWT adopt, and why these competitions are even harder, scarier, and more demanding than they look. You can head over to blisterreview.com and check out the show notes to this episode of the podcast to watch videos of some of Garrett's FWT runs, see some of his trip reports from previous tour stops, and read a few of Garrett's blister reviews. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines is now offering seasonal flights between Seattle and Steamboat Springs, as well as flights to Sun Valley from Seattle and LAX. Go to alaskaair.com forward slash ski to check out the specific terms and conditions. Now let's get to that conversation with Garrett. So we're sitting here at Blister headquarters with uh, Garrett Altman, um, a good friend of mine, uh, a Blister reviewer, a competitor on the Freeride World Tour. Garrett wears a lot of different hats and probably has a a lot of titles that we could come up with. And we'll get to a few more of those titles uh, in this conversation. But uh, the Freeride World Tour is going to be kicking off uh, soon here. And in fact, Garrett is going to be leaving on the 19th um so just uh in less than a week um from when we're recording this and so we wanted to have garrett come and talk a bit about the tour um his thoughts about it uh his plans for this season some of his kind of insane background uh slash insane stuff he's up to these days and so um we thought it was the right time to have garrett come on to the blister podcast so welcome garrett right on thanks jonathan (laughs) Glad to be here. <laughs> so, uh, let's let's get a few details out of the way. Um, you you are uh, as the announcers always love to like. It's like the only thing they like to talk about uh, for the the tour. But you know, it's sort of old man Garrett on the tour here, and and you're uh, about to turn thirty eight. I think you'll be turning thirty eight when you're in Chamonix. Is that right? That's correct. That's during the second event. That's a pretty good place, I think, to have a birthday. Yeah, it just happens to fall on a Saturday, and I'm sure it'll lead into Saturday night quite nicely, especially if it's the same night as the wrap-up party, so nice. looking forward to it. 
But you're you're not actually the the oldest competitor on the tour, right? There's no, actually, there are there are people older than me, believe it or not. <laughs> the, the, announcer, the, the announcers won't say that, but yes. Um, I think technically I'm the third oldest competitor on the tour right now. I'm the second oldest skier behind Stefan Housel. And Flo Orley in the men's snowboarding division is the oldest competitor. And he, I believe, is going to be 41 this year. So he's got a few years on second and third runner-ups. It's pretty impressive to me. I mean, one, because I ski with you a lot and you take a lot of chances. <laughs> so the <laughs> fact that like you can still walk is always amazing to me. But you, you didn't exactly come to skiing late in life. I mean, you started early, right? Yeah, I, I started earlier than most, but not as early. Well, not as early as some. I mean, most kids start when in mountain towns when they're four or five years old, if not younger. And I didn't really move to Mammoth Lakes, California, where I was originally born, till I was eight years old. And that's really where I started skiing regularly. Up until that point, I'd been on skis two, three times. And come eighth, eight, nine years old, fourth and fifth grade, I really started skiing regularly and getting back, getting used to it on a regular basis and really took to it. So you were, you were born in Mammoth. Yes. And then went to? To Ventura, California, and then Santa Barbara, where I went to elementary school. Moved back to Mammoth when I was eight years old. Um, skied and snowboarded for a couple of years. Raced competitively. Skied, snowboarded in some of the first halfpipe competitions competitively as a Grom at 10 years old at that point. And about that time, after racing a couple of years and and, and and skiing throughout the mountain and seeing Plake and all these guys come to town and film License the Thrill and, and just to see this, this, this fringe culture of skiing in addition to just experiencing the mountain, which Mammoth has plenty of, um, it really taught me to appreciate everything there is to skiing be, beyond the race course. And while I appreciated racing and the fundamentals it brought to my skill set, it also opened up many doors, which didn't open for a while. And after a couple of years racing, I being scalded at my coaches for hitting jumps on the way to the course, and <laughs> being told I'm supposed to focus on on the gates. It's like, well, I kind of want to turn and where I want to turn and jump where I want to go, jump. And um, later on, I was introduced to a, a freestyle competition on travel while at Bogus Base in Idaho. Um, after the event. Um, I, I met the coach from Sun Valley, Idaho, John Zook, who at the time was starting a new freestyle program in conjunction with the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation and was offered to to join their team and as an intro to come up and check it out. And that particular spring I went for closing weekend and this was about 1991 and there were about 40 guys and girls and just this huge rat pack straight out of hot dog the movie but in the <laughs> 90s and former world champions and local ski bombs and just a huge scene of mogul skiers and it was something i'd never experienced before i'd seen the fringe extreme skiers i'd seen some cool race stuff but to see that freestyle background it really drew me and um but on school the day after school was out in seventh grade we moved to sun valley idaho and I started a freestyle background at that and time. And you moved to Sun Valley. Your family moved to Sun Valley just for that. It was, you were going to... 
Yeah, more or less. Um, my parents separated in, in elementary school, and while I had a, I still have a strong relationship with my dad. Um, I mainly lived with my mom, and her employment was flexible. And when I had this opportunity to go train with this sort of semi-elite level ski club up in Idaho, and get a scholarship and had some conducive things to go up there, um, she was into supporting me, and I knew after sixth grade I wanted to go pro in skiing or snowboarding and actually at that time I even knew I wanted to go with skiing just because for a number of reasons but I'm, I'm glad I went with skiing still to this day and and I still appreciate snowboarding every bit but so okay uh, so you <clears throat> you go to Sun Valley and then that's where you really started getting into mogul skiing yes and the first year I was I was a little coarse. I, I knew how to make GS turns in a race course, and I knew how to kind of make a few turns in a zipper, but the zipper line was pretty frowned upon in Sun Valley, and they were, they were uh, very into the fundamentals of carving and, and style and good use your skis, not your knees. Don't slam bumps. Carve on the backside of them and ski the tops, the sides, the fronts, stuff them and occasionally hit a rut, but if you don't have to, don't be down in there. And it, it was a whole different style of skiing, so I, I wasn't able to pick it up in a couple of weeks or months, but I managed to hold my own through the season. I didn't qualify for the Junior Nationals that year, but I did also compete in upright aerials at that time, and that I had a, a couple of years under me, and I managed to make the Junior Nationals that first year in upright aerials. Got to go to, I think it was, it was Park City, Utah that year. At the, it was the first year they had any events at the Utah Olympic Park, formerly known as Bear Hollow at the time. And then the following four years, I did make junior nationals for moguls. And when after I graduated high school, I made the U.S. development team uh, and skied NORAMs for two years. And jumping ahead here, but at that same time, I also moved to, to Squaw Valley, California, to go train with Ray DeVree and, and, and Duke. And uh, those were Johnny Mosley's coach prior to the Nagano games and up too. And so a crew of us moved out to Tahoe and wanted to tap into that, that caliber of coaching. And we didn't necessarily dislike our coaches. It was just that we felt like we wanted to learn, expand our, our skill set. And, and Squaw was the place at the time. And after being in Sun Valley for for 10 years and really embracing that technique and fundamental carving and style. It was nice to go out there and get the little more militant <laughs> coaching and he, he'd still yell at me for not skiing in the ruts, but I didn't succumb to that and <laughs> still won't. <laughs> but yeah, so the, then out at Squaw, it was nice to actually make the U.S. team and go compete internationally, which was a huge goal of mine. And at that point, I was dreaming of sixth grade of being in the Olympics by then. So to make international ski competition was a step that was definitely needed and um, did a two, couple years on NORAMS, Continental Cup. Wanted to go to Europa Cup, but the U.S. team has a lot of politics and they really like to keep the, the high caliber skiers in North America to keep our points here. And it's, it's a little tricky when you get to that level and unless you have your own jet and 
a thick a thick wallet you're you're kind of limited on what you can do but at the same time it was still gratifying to go to canada and throughout the u.s and represent the u.s for the first time internationally it's it's kind of amazing to me and <clears throat> i think thinking about the athletes on the free ride world tour these days i don't know enough about everybody's background but i don't suspect the backgrounds are similar to what you've just been describing right strong strong competitive mogul background an aerial background probably some of these people were uh in race programs at least at a young age but and the other thing that i find remarkable about this i mean one if anybody has ever watched garrett ski in a competition or skied with him the dude is a freaking remarkably sound technical skier it's 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 kind of staggering actually but and and that is the other thing when the announcers in the FWT aren't talking about how old you are they are talking about like how good the technique is but i think it's so interesting because you're still doing your thing at a really high level and i'm not, i i just think it's an interesting point that i'm not sure that as we're seeing great riders on the FWT come up it doesn't seem like maybe we're seeing as much of this background being common. Is that is that true or not? I, I wouldn't call it uncommon, and it's it, you might be a little surprised, but I would say at least a quarter, if not a third, of of the athletes, both male and female, on the free ride world tour skiing side of things, um, have been involved with mogul skiing at some point. Um, the rookie who came in with a rookie season my my inaugural season on the tour two years ago louis column paton um has a strong mogul background um one of my rivals and good friend julian lopez has a, a strong mogul background to the caliber i was skiing um, he was on the french national team um uh, you have Jackie Peso, an American who has been in the top three overall standings many years and is just an absolute force to reckon with on the women's side. And uh, we, we grew up skiing moguls together and meeting <laughs> each other at nationals in Maine and, and have mutual friends from that era. Um, and I think it's pretty common, a lot of these sort of free riders, quote unquote, um, have a very freestyle oriented background because we are sort of that breed who were fed up with being told where to turn on a race course and we wanted to do more and a lot of us pursued moguls as our passion and eventually transitioned to the free ride as as the late J.P. Eau Claire and um, Julian Rainier Laforge who, who runs Black Crow Skis now. Um, those guys were were free riding after their mogul careers when there was no free ride world tour. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, it really is, goes hand in hand. Uh, I think the actual competitive element of the free ride world tour is attractive to people like me, at least in my instance, is that it gives us a chance to kind of continue that competitive involvement. Um, as, as sick as it is sometimes from nerve wracking and preparation and, and travel and, and cost, yeah. um, it's, it's, you, you, you kind of wonder why you do it at times, but there's a, it's, it's really a passion to, 
to su- succeed and push yourself at skiing, to train, motivate, and propel yourself when it it really comes down to the three, two, one, go. And then there's the other the 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 side benefits. I mean, there's great pride in representing your your country and in your local ski area and your homies and your the groms that you ski with every day. And there, there's a lot of pride involved with that, and it's an honor to do that. Uh, and then there's the camaraderie on the tour, and the rivalries, and the parties, and the and and just the amazing places we get to ski. And with the the free ride world tour in particular, it's like we go to some exotic places that literally are the best places in the world to ski, uh, with the exception of here right now because we have so much snow and <laughs> right. great terrain. Right. Um, but no, it's just it, it's 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 a really neat experience and it's a great motivator for training for ski season and getting in shape and staying injury free and and it's an honor to still be competing at my age. I don't know how much longer I will be. I mean, this could be my last season. I I may or may not go another year. Um, I'm not really drawing any lines in the sand on that, but um, as as long as I'm physically capable and functional to uh, continue, I think it's it's important to to maintain (laughs) and represent. and, and really like it, it's part of growing up with that psyche of wanting, I, I can't deny it, of wanting to be a world champion or an Olympic gold medalist. You're, you're, you grow up with that desire and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't leave you very easily or if it ever does and you can transition it to other aspects of your life. But um, as long as I feel I'm capable of still winning an event... Um, I feel like there's no reason I shouldn't be competing. I can still coach on the side and still give back in other ways to the sport. But at the same time, if I'm not, I, which I I retired four years ago and (laughs) here I am, I came back because I felt like I was kind of wasting away. Like, yeah, it's, if you're skiing that good and you can really go out there and crush it, why not? Yep. If you were a kid coming up today, do you really think that, do you think you would have somehow found your way to competition mogul skiing, competitive mogul skiing? Or do you think you'd just be one of these kids we see ripping around, you know, Taos all the time or whatever, just skiing kind of some big mountain, running into the park a bit? Um, You know, what, have you ever thought about that? I haven't, and I think it's it's part of the the locale you're 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 growing up skiing at. I think with a place like Taos, where we have such a strong big mountain program, and and great coaches and great terrain and everything facilitates the big mountain world. I think I would probably be a big mountain skier. Uh, I would suspect I'd race as a kid. Um, I'd suspect. I'd hope my parents made me race as a kid yeah. because I feel it's so critical and I feel like that might be something lacking with a lot of these big mountain programs is, is the fundamentals that I had ingrained in me and I feel like are, are critical to succeed later on. Uh, however, if I lived in Park City or Steamboat or Sun Valley or Squaw Valley or any of those places... Um, a lot of these free ride teams encompass moguls, park, big mountain, and I think I'd be more of a jack of all 
trades, like I'd be one wanting to be sort of the Gus Kenworthy, who's not just focused solely on half pipe, but he's equally invested in slope style and in half pipe. Mm-hmm. And while these aren't that different, I, I feel like being a well-rounded skier in many different disciplines is, is key to success and, and coaches feel differently and I may be wrong, but that's just how I am. And I think it's, yeah, it's great to be well-rounded in different disciplines, hence my track record. Plus, I think you get bored easily. So I, th- I think yeah. you, would ju- you would just want to start. You would be supposed to in, oh, you know, be banging gates or something and be like, where'd Garrett go? And you'd be in the like in the terrain park on like on slalom skis. <laughs> right, yeah, or on park. slalom skis. Yeah. And that's what happened growing <laughs> up is I would do ski team all morning and then I'd jump on a snowboard all afternoon or I'd come out on a board all morning when it was powder and then I'd get bored and go ski all afternoon. Uh, and then when I made the US ski team, as soon as like comp season was over, I was entering ski cross events and competing at skier cross world championships at Squaw, watching Duran Ralves win after he gets off World Cup. And watching these, these elite, the best skiers transitioning across different disciplines and, and, and placing strongly, if not winning. So I just, I really value multidiscipline not success, but just skill. Mm-hmm. I think that I think the the well, most well-rounded skiers are the best skiers on the mountain, and I try to be one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what happened here, right? I mean, I know the story, but you were still sort of on that trajectory to be. You were on the path to be an Olympic bump skier, right? Yeah, that was that was my goal. And what year? What year then? So we've got this run up on your story and. You're training with the the U.S. team, um, and so I made the. I was in the fall, early season in '98, '99, maybe it's '97. I did right around that time, but basically the goal was was it was the 2002 games in Salt Lake, and the to make World Cup from Continental Cup, you need you have two you have two opportunities. You can one win nationals and if you you have not second place but win it and you're guaranteed world cup starts the next year the second option is during every december we have the u.s ski team selection events and that's a two-day event with your combined finish uh the top two combined finish um are on the usc team and get world cup starts that year during an olympic year there is a third event called the gold cup or actually they don't even do the gold cup anymore i think now the selections are the u.s team trials and and at the time there's the gold cup so if you were on c team and you didn't make have an olympic spot uh, start you could still go to the gold cup and win that and be in the olympics but basically you really have two chances to make the u.s team over the year it's oh wait and there's there's a third if you win norams and not just for the U.S., but the overall leader for the Continental Cup, whether it be, I don't know even if they would accept Euro Cup, but I think if you win if you win NORAMs, you win nationals, or you place top two at selections, you get one of the four, opportun- the four spots on the U.S. ski team. And at that time, I was, had finished, I don't know, I was in the top 14, I think, for singles, and maybe the 
maybe around 10th for 8th or 10th for duels and two different disciplines in mogul skiing and what's interesting about those two disciplines on a side note is that single mogul skiing has been in the olympics since 90 since lilyheimer 92 and or 94 excuse me but um, the discipline of dual moguls is also accepted to the olympics but it's up to the host venue whether they want to have singles or duels so at the time it was equally beneficial to get on the team for duels which i was fourth in the country i think when i was injured so i was nipping at the the heels and and basically what happened to what derailed my mobile career is i was filming in breckenridge colorado and it was my second year filming for warren miller and had a exhibition shoot it was my third segment i was going to be in for them and was in um, and basically they invite sort of the elite mogul skiers and aerialists or slope style i think at this particular shoot it was everybody from some champion acro skiers to a full suite of mogul skiers and then a couple groms like tanner hall and and some older guys like sean smith former mogul skiers and we they basically bring a dozen of us together build up a huge terrain park throw some moguls in the middle of it and do some Warren Miller stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and? And so we'd been there shooting, and uh, we had these these huge quarter pipes on the sides of these tabletops, and the outsides of the quarter pipes were 40, 50 feet down. The insides were 11 or 12, and I was sort of, I guess you could call it rehearsing, but I was practicing on a quarter pipe for a shoot that afternoon. We were going to lunch, and I was hitting this sessioning this quarter pipe, and just trying to get it dialed so I could boost it in the shoot and get the shot. And I drifted slightly right on my takeoff. Uh, the quarter pipe was only six feet wide. It was a very narrow little precipice we were launching. And you didn't want to fall out the outside 40 to 50 to flat. So I drifted inside, fortunately, or less fortunately, and ended up landing on a... Uh, like one of those little railroad tracks for, for cameras, like Hollywood mm -hmm. style, and mm -hmm. um, just sort of landed facing uphill and hyperextended my knee, um, sustained a partial tear to my ACL, and was hoping I could potentially heal from it. I did a pretty rigorous physical therapy over the summer. I came back into the selection, US ski team selections in December, and was feeling strong and skiing well. I boosted my super pad in the morning, which was the, the big landing on the top air that I was uniquely known for jumping to. Um, I can talk more about that in a bit, but uh, yeah, I basically, I qualified sixth place after first run, um, made finals with the top 16, which is striking distance. I was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was, it would have given me a year on World Cup before the Olympics to really earn another Olymp to earn an Olympic spot. And I went into finals with a 15 minute training run and I boosted that top air on my training run and landed exactly where I wanted to and had that morning. But uh, after the first round of competition, the snow had been scraped off and it was a blue man-made mogul underneath from no snow until the, that day of that event, we got three feet of snow at Snowbird, Utah, 
and I landed on a hard mogul and it finished off my ACL and mm. it blew out and tried to ski in the comp- the final and couldn't even ski to the top air and just pulled out and it's like sayonara for, for this year. Um, we don't give up easy in mogul skiing or, or skiing in general. <laughs> yeah. And part of being an athlete is, is really taking your injury in stride and, and working out and, and doing the physical therapy and doing what you need to get to back to where you want to be. And so I ended up having surgery and doing my ACL repair with a hamstring graft. Um, the U S ski team doctor who later did tiger woods back or some knee or something. Um, but whatever, it didn't work. <laughs> um, I came back the next year at selections in uh, December of 2001, right before the Olympics, with the hope of, okay, if I can get top two at selections, I can earn my spot into the Gold Cup and and still potentially make the Olympics. And we went to Steamboat, Colorado, or to Winter Park, Colorado, excuse me, and I f- ended up, I think it was the second day on snow, or second day training moguls. Um, I checked my speed on my last run of the day for the top jump of the mogul course and the new ACL just popped. And, and that was, that was when I knew like, okay, yeah. mogul career is, is over for your goal for 2000, your lifelong goal to go to the Olympics at least is not going to happen in 2002. I didn't know if it was going to happen later, but at that point it was sort of like, two times in a row I was mildly over it to say the least yep. and and ended up just going and skiing that year still without an ACL <laughs> I was strong I pat I mean I'd been conditioning for 11 months to to perform so I couldn't jump I couldn't land in the back seat but I still had enough of I could still maintain and um, I went back to Sun Valley that winter and coached and had a fantastic winter skiing and just amazing snow conditions and and really just skied for fun and and for what i ski for even though i ski competitively i do ski for fun i enjoy it i enjoy the weather i enjoy the light i enjoy the people i enjoy scaring the shit out of myself when i can (laughs) (laughs) i know this about you (laughs) so yeah and then after that i basically i i got my knee fixed again in the spring and did some crazy whitewater rafting trip in a brace and then went back to school (laughs) <laughs> so yeah let's talk about that so when you say went back to school are we are we up yet to grad school or no we- no we're, we're maybe halfway through junior college okay. so um, once I graduated high school and moved to, to Tahoe um, even then um, right after high school I, I attended Santa Barbara City College for a semester fall semester every year and it was really important to me to, to go to school because, you know, exactly what happened could happen. You, you can get injured. There's, there's, there's a lot of what ifs in, in, in trying to chase a, a ski dream. And, and you, you, you got to have a backup plan to be realistic about the whole thing. So I felt like I had always wanted to go to college and um, my parents never had, but they supported me in it. And I did a semester a year at junior college. Um, when I made the U.S. team, I was only doing a quarter a year. But when, as soon as nationals were over, I would, I would go to Lake Tahoe Community College and take statistics and some general ed that would transfer. So um, when my injury finally did succumb in, in 2002, when I went back to school, I only had a, semest- a summer school session 
to finish junior college and finish my AA. And then I transferred to UC Santa Barbara um, as a comm major, switched to geography, busted that out in a year and a half. It took me five and a half years to finish my two-year degree, but it only took me a year and a quarter to finish my two-year. A couple summer school sessions, just busted it out straight through. Um, Ended up with an internship out here in New Mexico and started skiing Taos and Silverton and just skiing for fun and not remotely thinking about competition. I didn't have any desire to ski bumps or, or compete in bumps. I still love to ski bumps. My knee was feeling good and really just skied for fun and got back into the the big mountain element, particularly when Silverton opened up to unguided that first couple of years and was able to, yeah, capture that, that passion for just going and shredding and, and, and pushing yourself in new ways and, and not worrying about competing. And speaking of, <laughs> speaking of not worrying about competing, I remember the very first time I met you. Do you, <laughs> do you remember this? We were, I think it was like closing day at Ski Santa Fe. Okay. And you had on this like ludicrous Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and I saw, I was like riding the chair up and I saw some idiot in this Hawaiian shirt, like on Road Runner, this bump run. And uh, I yelled something down at you and you like, put your poles on your head and like started just shredding moguls and it was it was all now abs- i remember that it was all absurd <laughs> and and i just like all right whatever that guy's weird but he can ski and and then you were hanging out at the bottom of the run with some friends of ours and i just remember i skied up and like you didn't know who i was but you just immediately pushed a pbr like to me <laughs> that was the introduction i was like this guy's all right Right. So yeah, so, a little loose, but yeah, a little loose. But it, it's just so funny hearing about this, like the the background and the training and the you know the Olympic uh, aspirations and and like I just knew you was like the whack job in the Hawaiian shirt who, who was really generous with his beer. Yeah, but you know, if it's closing weekend, if you're not in an outfit of some exorbitant, <laughs> some sort of state. I think you're the whack job at the yeah. time, so <laughs> in, in my defense. Could be, could be. <laughs> no, no, I th- I've always believed in, like, I think everybody who's out there listening to this and skis every day, we all do it for fun and yeah. the, the enjoyment of skiing. And, you know, it, it, it gets, it can get as serious as you want or not serious as you want in your thick cotton socks and your rear entry <laughs> boots and your yep. jeans or whatever it is. Yep. And, and you know it doesn't really matter we're all out there doing it for the same reason it doesn't matter whether you're on a snowboard or skis or telly or a freaking toboggan in my mind right. you're out there doing something so right. i think that's why we're all there and i i really think it's important to keep that in mind and, and i always laugh when i compete with guys who don't yeah yeah amen preferably so, at them yeah <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get back to talking about the the free ride world tour um and the comps. So uh, you leave on the 19th and you're headed to, first stop is? Uh, first stop is Valnord Arcalis in the small country of Andorra. Mm-hmm. So I'm flying into Barcelona. It's a, about a three to four hour bus ride um, up to, to the town of Ordino, where we say. If you're ever interested in going to Andorra, go to Ordino and, and go skiing. It's freaking sweet. 
Um, this, this place I got to experience for the first time this last year. It's in the, the Pyrenees Mountains, which, is the, which stretch the border between uh, Spain and France. And they right smack in the middle, there's a small, small I won't almost call it a municipality, but it's a uh, small sovereign nation of sorts where um, it's similar to Switzerland. They're, they're heavily reliant on their banking industry. I think uh, when, when I was there, I hear that a lot of uh, Middle Eastern royalty keep their, their money there. And, ah. and if a, a banker talks about his client, the, the law to this day is death by firing squad. <laughs> so nice. they have some money and they, they have some great mountains, but they also are really conducive to <clears throat> supporting international sport from mountain biking to skiing hmm. to a host of other things. I think we need to visit it's, there. It, it, blister, blister review trip. Uh, to, uh, I, I highly recommend it. And okay. so I also highly recommend the next stop too for anybody who's into big mountain skiing. So the next um, stop is, is Chamonix, right? Correct. Correct. So I believe it's about two weeks after the Andorra event. And in between, they're going to be hosting the Swatch Skiers Cup in Andorra. And that is sort of the, the elite team event between the Americas, North and South, uh, mostly Canadian and American riders with Sage Catabringo Losa heading the, the U.S. team this year against uh, the European contingent, which consists of... The Richard Permans and stuff. I'm trying to think of who the captain is this year. I slip in my mind, but that's okay because that's the the other team. <laughs> um, but basically, looking at the the, the rosters, it, it looks like it's TGR versus MSP. <laughs> so I don't know why they're calling it the Skiers Cup, but regardless, it's it's fun to check out and it should be good. And I, I don't know, maybe I'll slip in there as an alternate or something. But, That'd be cool. Uh, yeah. So, but after that, we go to Chamonix. Um, that's one of the most impressive events on the tour. It's just one of the most impressive places to visit. Uh, the mountains just rise from the valley floor there, like straight up. <laughs> it's yeah. it's something else. Beautiful little town. Um, you have the highest mountain in Europe right there with Mont Blanc. And then you have a tunnel that goes through to the Italian side and just a great place to visit and ski and get rowdy and watch people get a lot rowdier than you ever thought you could be. And it's just how it is. Um, and so after that, we have a three week break or hiatus and we continue in Fieberbrunn, Austria. Um, that'll be the third event on the tour um, with the first three all taking place in Europe. And following that, the, the only North American event will take place in Haines, Alaska, which has become one of the more prominent, if not equally the most prominent to the final, um, with Alaska just being the sort of the precipice of big mountain skiing and mm. of snow in, in our sport. Like it's the best place to ski in the world. And you go there and everybody unanimously feels that way. And it's, it's a whole different different style of skiing, a different style of snow management, slough management, um, cold temperatures, extreme variations in snow morphology, just a whole different game. And really everybody looks forward to going there. And in order to get to Alaska, they will do a cut after the first three events on the tour. And so we start out the tour with how many, how many skiers? 
Um, we have about 24 to 26 on the roster for the men's skiing, yep. about half that for women and for women's skiing. And then snowboarding is about half that of the men and half that of the women. So there's about maybe 15, 16 male snowboarders and about eight snowboard women. Well, there's about 16 to 18 ski women. Yep. And so you'll, <clears throat> you will take start with this initial 24 to 26, let's just say on the guy's ski side for right now. But yeah. that after the three first, so first three comps, that number will drop to... To 14 yep. for Alaska. And they will take the top 14 to Alaska, and then they will cut only two riders, but only the top 12 will continue on to the final, which is in Verbier, Switzerland. And that is sort of the infamous, uh, the Bec de Rosis. It's the, the longest running free ride competition in the world. And after being on the tour, you realize what a big deal it is, especially over in Europe. It is the Super Bowl of big mountain skiing of sorts. It's mm -hmm. every, every competitor is, is really striving to get there equally to Alaska now. But really the Bec is really where all these guys in in Europe really geared toward and to finish there it's 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 an accomplishment in itself and what's also alarming here about these guys skiing the back is how scared they are yep um, it's every rider respects it like no other slope we, we experience all year I mean you go to Chamonix and everything's gnarly but it's they're like yeah that's nothing <laughs> and I mean you get to the back and first you have to risk your life climbing the thing for two and a half hours and you fall off either side and you're dead and there's no rope and it's just sketchy and and then you get up top and you're so petrified from the <laughs> climb you got to think about this maze of a, of a mountain to ski down and it's 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 really the the highlight of the season competitively and and that's sort of where i've set my sights this year yep. to finish yep so <clears throat> Talking strategy a little bit about the tour. One thing that drives me crazy about the tour, and I would love to see this changed, is it's still, correct. please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's still one run, right? It's one run at each of the six events. So you got these poor athletes flying all the hell around the world <laughs> to roll up and like hike two and a half hours to go get a two minute run. One, like yeah. I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand why this isn't, why there aren't two runs at, at each or, or, you know, or you could do one run for the first three comps and then two runs after that. But if anyone out there is listening who has, <laughs> uh, who could affect this, it's stupid. <laughs> it's just stupid. And then you end up with the thing that you and I've been talking about for the last three years, which is mm -hmm. like, do you just play it safe? Mm -hmm. Or do you try to go hit the spectacular home run with your one run? And I think if there were two two runs, it would yeah. completely change the 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 nature of these absolutely of these comps. There's, there's no doubt about it, and I really think some of the best skiing and competition it comes out when there's a final. They do it in racing. They yep. do it in freestyle. They they've done it in big mountain. They still do in the American events a lot of times, and they haven't necessarily written it off 
And even in Alaska this last year, they were hoping to do uh, what they call a super final, which would be the, the top six. Yep. And, and I'm, I'm all for it. Everybody's yep. all for it. Um, this issue, needs to happen. The, the, the issue we have is that our, our events that are not heli-accessed, which Alaska was the only one that is heli-accessed and had that potential for lapping skiers around. But typically, or not typically, in every event, we are hiking at least an hour to get to our start. Um, free ride in Europe is not heli skiing. It is, it is put your skis on your pack and go climb that peak adjacent to the ski area and ski to that valley and then hike, hike back to the resort sometimes. It's, it's not a, 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 a pick me up, take me there, ride the lift, ride a helicopter. It's very, you're hiking and you're earning your turns and, mm -hmm. and, and there's something to be said for that, but from a, from a competition um, event standpoint it's really hard to put that many people through and without a chairlift or a helicopter it's 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 nearly impossible to to be able to to have a lap on, on these faces we're, we're we're skiing in i mean 2,000 to 4,000 foot paces and alaska was 30 okay maybe not 4,000 but alaska was 32 to 3,500 feet and and everything else we're hiking is 18 to 28 and there's just there's just not the time in the day for it um not Wait to a say are you not backing me up now on my two run are no you... i'm backing you that it's needed yeah. but the the format of hike to the top needs to change mm -hmm. and it's really tricky because their helicopters are everywhere in europe and they'll they'll do avalanche beacon searches from the helicopter over there when mm -hmm. When like American Dave went down in Chamonix last year, then hmm. um, and, and they're they're widely used. They're a lot less money to operate, but the issue is is a lot stickier when it comes to passengers. Unless you're like being medicked out, they will not. You're not allowed to get dropped off to go skiing. It's it's a it's a tricky deal. Um, we had one instance in Chamonix the first year I was there where a girl. Something happened on her run, and she she was issued a, a restart because it was out of her control, and the judges unanimously agreed she gets another run. And they snuck this girl in the, to the the chopper that was filming, and and the the tour and the the helicopter agency sustained a huge fine for it because it's just not permitted to to take skiers up. So okay, so listen, so here's the compromise. This is and they should come back to the U.S. and compete more. Well, one <laughs> or two, you could even do this. This would be a simple thing. Mm -hmm. In Haines, let's do it there, right? So first you have to qualify, but if you qualify and you are in the top you know, 14, make for it men. to the top 14, then you get at least two runs there to decide who goes on to Verbier. Mm -hmm. Who would be against this? And logistically, this could be done easily. Easily. In a sense, if the weather is good, yeah. the snow conditions are good, nobody crashes and there's no injury that takes an hour out of the day, it, it, it's logistically insane to throw these events off it, mm -hmm. especially when they're at 9,000 feet and you're trying to catch a weather window. Um, there, it, It's been done. We've done it successfully on the free skiing world tour in, in North America for years. They still try to. Um, a lot of times they'll have a cut for a second run 
And that, that's kind of what I think should happen. If we have 14 in Alaska, yeah. hey, everybody, we're going to send the top eight into a final. Mm-hmm. Stay on your feet and rip. Yeah. And, and those guys who are, are in the top five, they're going to come back and they're going to freaking slay stuff. And it's going to look so much better and it's going to put our skiing so much more appropriately on the map for what we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you that, that that two runs is beneficial to the sport. It's just a matter of, of identifying the logistics and finding ways to make it happen. And it's just not super straightforward as I wish it was. Yep. So given this, right, six events, you get one stupid run. You better not screw up. <clears throat> that, that's when it becomes a stupid run. Only if you screw up. <laughs> just well, to correct you. Yeah. Well... <laughs> You know what though? You get that one run, and it's it's. You know what? what? What do you do when you go touring all day? And you maybe not all day, but what if you go tour all day to climb one mountain and ski one run? You want to make that run count, and it's it's extremely difficult with visual inspections. We don't get to go up and, and ski the terrain ahead of time. We don't get to stand on top and look down at it. We got lucky in Alaska because the clouds moved in, and a few of us got to look down the course, but. Otherwise, it's all visual inspection. You don't have this rehearsal. You, you, you really get up there and you get one shot. And, <laughs> and, and, and then it comes down to risk versus reward. Yep. Athleticism and just pure luck, man. You're in the mountains. There's so many variables. You're, you're guessing what snowpacks are going to be like on a landing. You have no idea what the takeoff looks like. When you're, when you're looking at it from below, you're like, oh, that's a sweet jump. And then you come into it on your run and it's this awful scraggy pre-jump that there's no way you're going to be able to three the thing or flip the thing or or even get off of it safely <laughs> and and there's a lot going on so you know you, you're trying to manage just a, a huge suite of a array of, of, of features and variables that in some senses it's like i don't want to do that twice <laughs> when i talk about it but i'm in full agreement with you we should have two runs it's just a matter of making it happen i'm, I'm really <laughs> glad to hear you talk about all that because i'm not i don't know that you know everybody following the tour understands how tricky it is i mean we're all sitting there looking at these big lines and that stuff is impressive in its own right but then add all the elements that you've just talked about that you've never been able to inspect this stuff seen it from the top i mean this is this is really really hard and demanding um but the funny part and i am (laughs) going to call you out here when we're talking about this you know the risk versus reward and and you and I had the exact same conversation in front of last season. Yeah. And it was just about like, dude, it's stupid, but if they're only going to give you one run, just stay on your feet. Like, don't take chances. I mean, it, it sounds stupid to say out loud, but it's like, that's what they're asking you to do. It's such a harsh penalty. If you backslap at all, you know, you're done. So, and frankly, given that, I think it's safe to say you probably are one of the most technically sound skiers mm-hmm. competing. Telling you to stay on your feet is like the easiest thing in the world. Um, and so, and yet, <laughs> so we had this conversation. And then telling me that I'm going to take it easy and ski conservative is, yeah. is the easiest thing in the world for me to say. <laughs> yes. 
but yeah. <laughs> easier said than done. And Easy. I know where I think you're, you're leaning here with this. And it's that it's how do we strategize for these competitions? And if you can anticipate a quarter to a third of the field falling, why not just ski conservatively and solidly and finish? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, and you're dead on with that. Mm-hmm. And I've been dead on talking about that in yep. the past. Um, however, in my defense or in, <laughs> yeah. in, in the nature of, of wanting to win yep. and having the opportunity to really, truly showcase your skill and to have the chance at winning a world title, you, 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 you ha- you, you're, you're compelled to push yourself or to showcase yourself and to not ski conservatively per se. And and <laughs> that may not be right. I mean, yeah. it, obviously, it hasn't been right for me when, considering I've been on the tour for two years so far, and I finished two runs uh-huh. <laughs> without falling. I, f- I finished more runs last year, but I still had crashed and got up and finished. If you lose your ski, you don't get a score. Yeah. Um, but if you crash and you finish, you're still getting a place placing and. At that point, you're competing against against everyone else who crashed, and and the score, the the your points throughout the season accumulate based on your place points. So, even if you crash, it's important to get up and finish. Yep. And 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 twenty sixth is better than twenty eighth. Yep. It could come down to Alaska or or no Alaska. So, but with that, the two runs I have finished, I've been in the top five. Yep, which. I'm, I'm proud to say it was really nice to actually attain success on the tour and especially in Chamonix my first season to, to almost win the thing. Like, yeah, it was sweet. And, and was I pushing it trying to win it that day? Actually, that was the event I was not. I was just skiing my game and there was a line I liked and I really liked it and I knew it was technical and I knew it was I had to be fluid through it. I remember rehearsing with through visual inspection with Ralph Backstrom and being like, hey man, how do I get this thing to not blind my slough, not to blind me, yet stay fluid enough to get through the thing? And everything on my whole run came down to that line, and I knew it was, it was also the most critical double feature of the line and of the run, and I knew I needed to stick it. But then I never anticipated that the freaking helicopter with the f- camera was going to come in and set up this huge wash of white white room and be blinded for, for 30 seconds before, and, and then be just totally disoriented and not knowing if I'm in the right spot when it clears, and wait, is this, am I in the right, oh, you gotta go, and and so, you know what? Well, I'm not gonna just go send it. I don't, I don't care how prestigious a world title is or how whatever bragging rights or whatever people are in it for. I just, I, I really separate my safety from the competition when it comes down to times like that, and I'll take my time if I got to side slip into this thing to make sure I'm not landing on that rock and and I'm gonna drop a double drop over the next 90 feet. I want to make sure I stick it and not get hurt and live to ski another day. And so I did it and I think I look at the pictures now. I'm like, wow, I was 16 inches away from that rock mm-hmm. on one side and who knows from the other. And and to me, it's like it doesn't matter. Then it's like go stomp the line, do what you're here to do, and just and that's it. Yeah. And, and see where you place and I got second and mm-hmm. a fat check and it was cool yeah. but 
But then this last year, I, I, I did try and push it. I had, I, I come into these events with that feeling and then, oh, well, that cliff's so easy. I got to send a three off of it. That's what I told myself at Sham last year. And it was a crappy takeoff, downhill takeoff yep. on crusty snow. And I landed back seat and ended up crashing and blowing my Chamonix run. And I heard the same thing you're telling me right now from my favorite boot shop guys there. And, and they're like, that's not what you were telling us yesterday yep. about playing it conservative. Yep. You did exactly the opposite. <clears throat> and it was a smack in my own face. Like, dude, gee, what are you thinking? Like, just finish your runs. See, but this is, this is my, I, you sound so like measured in this conversation. It's kind of cracking me up. Cause you're like sitting here, well, you know, I'm not out there to hurt myself. That's bullshit. Like, I think the thing about you and skiing with you is you get smitten by a line. You get mm -hmm. mesmerized. And we do this all the time. Like, yeah. we're like, let's go over here and go ski that thing. And then it's like, where is Garrett? And like, oh, I found this thing in the trees yeah. I've been looking at for three years yeah. and it's finally filled in. And, and, I, and I mean, I, I actually, it's one of the things, it's one of the things that I, I love about you as a skier, but it's also maddening when it comes to this strategy thing. But I really do think like you get on top of some of this stuff and you just get excited by, I'm going to spin a three off this thing because it looks sweet. And, and it's a funny thing watching you have to kind of think through or battle that kind of instinct versus what you sort of intellectually know mm -hmm. would be the smarter play. And I don't know, it's interesting. I, I do want to talk about one, <laughs> this story, this one story kind of um, sums it up, I think, about <clears throat> Garrett, maybe maybe Garrett on risk or, or Garrett uh, as a skier. I remember once you and I were, we were actually going to climb in White Rock. And uh, oh, good. I thought you were going to talk about the casino or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> we'll leave the casinos out of it. Right. But uh, we were on it, we were, we were uh, heading up to a crag in White Rock, and you were talking about a story about I think it was filming uh, when you were filming with Warren Miller, and it, I think you guys had actually shut it down for the day, and you were with a group. And I'm like walking ahead of you to the crag, you're behind me telling the story, and you got to a point where you're like, and so, yeah, we were done filming, cameras were away, but I saw this thing and it was like, kind of like an 80 footer down to this small pad. And, you know, again, I'm just walking ahead, like thinking about climbing and sort of paying attention to this story, but, and you said, you know, so I saw this 80 footer and that, man, it was this gorgeous, gorgeous drop, super aesthetic. Uh, and I looked down at that pad and I was like, well, I bet I have like a 30% chance of landing this. So in my head, this is the part in my head where you go, you know, so I like, yeah, I backed off of it, like 30% chance on an 80 foot jump. And you know, the next thing you said was like, so, you know, I sent it. And I was like, what the hell? What, what oh, are you talking about? I think we just lost all my credibility. Yeah. So anyway, that, that to me, um, if I'm standing on top of an 80 foot jump, one, I'm not hitting it at all. And two, I'm definitely not hitting it if I think I have a, if my self-assessment is I have a 30% chance of landing it. Um, so I do think yeah, that actually- I think actually... I broke my arm on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm actually like, not in defense, but like, I'm really not this ghost 
send it blindly blindly um especially at 38 years old like i can't i can't afford to sprain my finger on the tour now or i'm out for pull planning for two weeks or something it's crazy how the smallest injuries will set you back and how refined it's made me not to say i don't push it like what happened on sunday at taos i mean holy (laughs) crap like i scared the like i think i saw this i think i did like I just remember I got done with the compression and landed and rodeo section out of these bumps without killing myself and was like, I think I just did every squat I'd done in the gym for the past four months in one squat. <laughs> and, and really it's, it's, it's a matter, yeah, it's risk versus reward, but it's also like, I'm so careful with, with finding steep landings and, and good snow and, and trying to, trying to be clean and stuff. And, and really, it came down last year in Andorra when they restaged the Austria event there because Austria avalanched out, and we were there. And I had a I had an A line and a B line, which I both knew were like quality lines. And sure enough, they ended up the guy who skied the A line won, and the guy who skied the B line got second. Nobody else skied those lines, and they both ended up first and second on the podium. But I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't. I wasn't dialed. I, I was hoping I would be feeling it that day. The sun came out, it was beautiful, everything was lining up, and then I went and skied, and there was like four inches of powder on spring crust underneath, and there was just nothing felt stable or safe and secure with the snow. And I had no idea, no desire to go billy goat myself into some no fall zone and not feel s- solid on my skis. And fortunately, the night before, I was sitting there looking at the computer like late night, got back from dinner, got 10 minutes to do my visual on the computer. And it was like, you know what? I don't feel like A or B right now. I feel like going over here and doing the freaking D line. And then I looked at the D and I'm like, oh, actually, that looks kind of like fun. (laughs) And and I kept that in my back pocket and I got up there that next day and I ended up going, hey, I'm actually going to go ski the D line now. I mean, I would have never thought I'd be doing this, but I'm going to because I don't feel right going for it today. It's not worth it to me. Mm-hmm. This is going to be my last competition run in my free ride world tours, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. And so I just went and skied for fun, and I went and sent it for fun and had, had a great Garrett run. Like, I, I did six airs or something <laughs> and, like, just skied whatever powder I could find and just had a good time with it. And... And the judges knew, said it looked like a fun run. Mm-hmm. Everybody was cheering when I got to the bottom. I, I was cheering because I thought it was my last competition run. And I was done with this sick sort of endeavor. But ended up fifth and squeaking into Alaska. And all of a sudden, like, I'm back on the tour for another year. And it was, it was also a reality check that, hey, you gotta, you gotta, you don't, you got to tone it back sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're a good enough skier that if you just go ski... Yeah. You're going to beat half the field, yep. whether they fall or not. So I'm, take, I'm trying to come into this season with a, with a new focus on my head. I'm not saying I'm not going to go for it. <laughs> I mean, if the, if the line presents itself and, and I'm confident and, and not necessarily confident, but if it's the line that I would ski if I hiked up there yeah. with you, yeah. then I'm probably going to go ski it. Yeah. <laughs> whether you think it's an 80-footer to a 30% pad or not. But I'm also going to try and I'm going to finish my runs. Yep. And I think I'm going to try and tap back into my old school roots more and, and, and 
try and bring out the, the fun of skiing. The judges liked when I did it, and I didn't even do any of my cool tricks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we're going to be seeing like a little more old school incorporations in my runs. Uh, probably some more solid skiing, maybe some big cliffs, or maybe not. You know, it depends on the conditions. But really, just trying to make skiing look good. Mm-hmm. And, and and have fun doing it and skiing the stuff I'd go ski if I hiked up there. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds good. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk. Uh, let's talk blister for a second. So you were. Hey, we're about to have an anniversary. By the way, uh, January twenty fifth, two thousand eleven is the day we launched the site. So January twenty fifth, we turned five years old. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, Wow, now, okay, now I'm old. <laughs> yeah. <No>. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I'll celebrate a five-year anniversary. Right? Heck yeah. But I remember... Congrats, we, by the way, that's well, awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know... And rocking. You've been a good part of it. And, uh, but you were, the, the day we went live, I think we went live with like maybe four or five ski reviews. I think it was like three. <laughs> maybe it was three, I don't know. But, but you were one of the, yeah, you had one of the very first ones up. Um, and uh, yeah, what a long, strange trip it's been. It was awesome, uh, man. And I, what what was the other the other name of the site you were you were considering? Oh, because there were two options. Man, I don't even know at this point. I yeah, it feels to me it feels like Blister is about fifty years old. So I, uh, I don't yeah, remember. I think it was like handlebar tape or something. <laughs> yeah. All we ended up with were blisters. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but no. it is. I mean, I think it, it's a pretty interesting thing i mean you've been busy enough between work and competing during the last three seasons that you know you haven't yeah but uh it is it is really fun um you know to have like this is pretty unique like we've got an fwt competitor who's weighing in on skis and even on some of the skis that you don't necessarily always write the review like i'll get you on them for some runs and we're talking about that and whatnot and um you know, but it's it's been an interesting thing having your input on on this, and um, yeah, maybe if you ever do stop competing, you know, we'll. Uh, you know, that's one of the like it actually like kind of kills me sometimes because there's so much going on in the equipment world right now, and and here like it's it's still going strong since parabolic skis came out. Yep, like in the late '90s was it? Yeah, and here we are with five point profiles being a thing of the past almost and it's just just staggering to see the new materials and like these these early bird skis with that are fully wood core and wood wood top sheet and sustainably sourced and and to hear these new companies coming out with new ideas and and tapping into different parts of the market and it's sometimes frustrating that i can't really like devote myself to this all the time because i'm like okay i have like right now, I have two days, maybe three, if I ski on the day I'm supposed to pack yep. to before I go to Europe. And it's like, well, I really want to go review the ski. And I, I actually, I want to review two skis, and I also want to ski this other ski. And yep. it's just, there's not enough time. It's kind of like wanting to go snowboard on certain powder days. Like, <laughs> man, I wish I didn't have like two days to ski before my next event. So it, it's, it's not that I want to, it's just, it's... It's sometimes it's hard being even on my side and being on the outside, but I'm happy to answer questions if anybody wants to f- write posts or reply to any of my posts. I'm 
I mean, I think we got a touring question on a Scott ski and, and I know nothing about the ski for this touring ski, but I know some guys in Europe who've been on it for the last couple of years mm-hmm. and I'm finding ways that, Hey, maybe actually when I get to Europe, I'm going to go talk to these guys and see if I can get this blister blister reader, uh, 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 an answer on a ski that I haven't skied, but yep. I know these guys who do and they shred and they tour like madmen, mm-hmm. and, and there's, there's different angles to stay involved and, uh, it'd be nice to send you guys some reports again of yeah. what's going on and how Julian Lopez got swept off a 60-footer yeah. <laughs> in a huge avalanche and lived to tell. So that's another that's another that's another thing is that you guys um, you may have seen on the site that we've had Garrett do some recaps um, of of events uh, of the FWT stops, but really what this comes from is. Garrett kind of writes these amazing emails after just like to some like friends and family and he would just these would just show up in my inbox and I was like this is really good writing and it was so vivid and so I was like dude we need to just put these on the site so we uh Hopefully we'll uh, we'll get some more of those those Garrett recap emails. Uh, unfortunately that started I think I had I had the flu that event and I was so grateful they canceled it i went straight well i hit some huge kicker session with sam Montemotten and drew tabke and the boys and we were all sending it and then i was just like i'm too sick i gotta go to the lodge and eat some soup and just write home because nobody knows where the hell i am yeah and that like (laughs) one of our competitors almost died today because out of his control it was straight up avalanche but then it's like, wow, like it's really important, I think, to, to relay the communication from, from those things. And I'm going to put more effort into it this year. And I'd love to see some stuff on the site and sending you guys some trip reports. And yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to respond to those posts. Awesome. Well, dude, this has been a lot of fun. And um, it's been we, pretty conservative in my book. It has. But it has been fun. <laughs> it, has been pretty, it has been pretty conservative, except for the... I need conservative right now. Yeah. It's good. It's good. <clears throat> except for the bottle of sake that we've we've uh, managed to take out, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty good sake. Um, but Garrett, um, yeah, wishing you much success on this tour. Number one, hoping that it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can't wait to watch you battle the angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other when it comes to all this risk versus reward stuff yeah um it's going to be very interesting to watch there'll be a uh, cossack in the middle dividing the two i'll tell you that right now (laughs) i believe you um but yeah we're gonna we're gonna watch with interest and and hope it's a really fun and and uh and good season on the tour for you and uh we'll probably have you back and we'll do some uh more podcast recap stuff about it Sounds good, man. I'm looking forward to making skiing look fun and exciting. Awesome. I'm sure you will. (laughs) That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks go to Garrett Altman for the conversation, to our amazing and strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, and to Alaska Airlines for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to go to alaskaair.com forward slash ski to check out all their current deals. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there. Subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes, and we'll catch you next Thursday on the Blister Podcast.
interesting people.